Donal, is this your Bible? Okay. Somebody's Bible's up here. It's Kiefer's? Yeah, we usually use our Bibles. It's an extra? Okay. <laughs> Good morning. How's everyone? Great. Doesn't, doesn't sound like it. Yep, there we go. Turn to James chapter 3. We're going to get through 12 verses today. Both McClellans just shook their head, no way. Literally. I just watched you. That's exactly what you just did. You just know? Oh, you wait. I didn't say how long it would take. James chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And if you've read ahead, hopefully. In light of that, Donal sounds different, doesn't he? The guy who was up here before, if you're not, if you're not sure, with the, with the accent before. First time that I heard him, remember it was over Zoom, remember Donal? First time we talked was over Zoom. And I thought, whoa, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that. I, I, I thought it. I didn't want to be rude. Um, but when you first hear him speak or heard him speak, did you identify Donal with a particular people group? You, you did, right? People ask, is he from Ireland? Is he from Scotland? Is he from Luxembourg? Those are the three that I get. No, I don't get much Luxembourg, but <laughs> that's Scotland, right, Donal? No, <laughs> it's not. It's, it's Ireland. Regardless, he's not from around here, and our first clue is, is how he speaks. He has an accent, and I think that's great. Um, lots of people in our church have an accent. Some people don't like to speak a lot because they have an accent, and I would tell you that it's because of God's providence that you're here with your accent, and so it's a beautiful thing. And so you should speak and let us who are from here hear your accent. It's a beautiful thing. We love God's providence, and you're here with your accent because of that. But in light of that, the first 12 verses in James chapter 3, don't you think we as Christians should have an accent? As a follower of Christ, shouldn't you have a distinct way of speaking? So ask yourself, does the world pick up on the fact that I'm not from around here. Does the world pick up on that? Do I, do we sound like Jesus? No one ever spoke like Jesus. That's John chapter 7. If Donald had kept reading, then you would have gotten down to verse 46. Um, and that's how the officers respond. As the Pharisees sent the officers out to go and arrest Christ, and they come back empty-handed, their question is, where is he? We sent you with chains to bring him back. Why are your hands empty? Their answer, no one ever spoke like that man. That was their answer. <laughs> and that's an understatement. As you glance through John chapter 7, the rest of John chapter 7, no way was anyone going to speak like that man. In verses 16 through 19, he says, everything that I teach comes from God. Verses 21 through 24, he says, Moses gave you circumcision. I healed a man's entire body. <laughs> Verses 28 and 29, I came from heaven, God sent me. Verses 33 and 34, you'll try to find me, but I'm going to heaven, and you can't come there. 
Verses 37 and 38, drink the water I give and you will never thirst again. So that's what the officers heard as they're sent out, you know, to bring Jesus back with chains. I can just imagine them sort of walking forward with the chains. He begins to speak and they stop and, nope, (laughs) no one ever spoke like that. But that's been the story ever since, so-called scholars and leaders from Various religions have repeatedly tried to arrest Christ, or at least discredit Him, refer to Him as a lunatic or a heretic or a um, political revolutionary, and still every time they come back empty. For 2,000 years since the eternal Word came and spoke audible words, He has resisted their arrest and He's confounded and humbled generation after generation after generation after generation. No one ever spoke like Jesus. So what was so different about the way that he spoke? Well, verse 18 in John chapter 7 is a clue. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You can find Jesus saying similar things throughout, sort of scattered around the Gospels. John chapter 5, verse 19, verse 30, verse 43, and verse 44. John chapter 7, verse 16, verse 18, the one we just read. John chapter 8, verse 28. But I I think verse 18 that we just read kind of gets at it, I think. If we're going to look at James 3 and figure out um, how we're to sound differently, how our words or our accent is to be like Christ's, uh, then John 7, 18 is a good place to start. So, again, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So there's the clue to why Jesus spoke differently and really to how we're going to sound like him. Why? And it's found in this. It's not what Jesus said so much as why Jesus spoke the words that he spoke. Jesus said what he said because he most cared about his Father's glory. So John 7, 18 says he did not seek glory from other people. His overwhelming pursuit was glorifying his Father, and that freed him to say what he needed to say in the way that he needed to say it. As we get into the text of James 3, that's how we have to see all of James chapter 3 and what it says about our own words. If we are the authority of what we say and how we say our words, then our words will be dangerous and destructive. Clearly, that's where he's going in this passage. And stating the obvious, the reason for why we claim authority over our own words and how we say our words is because of selfish ambition or because we are seeking our own glory. So if we struggle with words, and this is me, it's because we have a glory issue. It's because we haven't gotten the whole chief end of man thing right. I ask this one, this question of the kids most often. Kids, what is the chief end of man? Who is that? Right there. To glorify God. I got two. Good. You you both get gold stars. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, forever. Our chief end extends to our words. It should give us an accent that, that, that others pick up on. So why does James give us 12 verses on our words here? Not just here. He's going to touch on it again. He already has touched on it once before, but it really shouldn't surprise us as to why he's hitting this. So if we go back to chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, we 
sort of see the connection begin. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So remember that religion here doesn't reflect our, or is not referring to our liturgy. It's not even referring to what our faith so much is as it's referring to the outward expression of our faith. And so in these two verses, James is setting the stage for uh, James chapter 2, James chapter 3, James chapter 4, and James chapter 5, where he's going to continue to focus on these three particular fruits or works or outward expressions of our faith, our religion. Those three things are a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life. And so these are the fruits and the works that he's going to zero in on for the rest of the letter. He's touched on all of them already, but he's going to continue to develop them as he goes through this letter. And so we can read then chapter 2 this way because that's in the mind of chapter 2, James 2, 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have a bridal tongue, compassionate heart, an unstained life is dead. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, an unstained life is dead. So reading James 3 in the context of James chapter 2, as we said last week, gives our faith legs. God gives us a faith that has legs or a faith that, that works or a faith that bears fruit, as we've said repeatedly over the last two or three weeks. And so works or fruit don't produce a saving faith. That's not James' point. No, his point is that a saving faith produces works, produces fruit, produces outward expressions, produces a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life. So that's where we're beginning today is with the bridal tongue or on our accent. So look at me with verse, chapter 3, verses. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, but just read verse 1 with me first. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Let's just jump over that and get into verse 3. No, I'd, I'd like to, but I can't. Why does James, though, start with teachers? It might sound strange to us. He's obviously going to speak about all believers' tongues and the use of their words. So why does he start with teachers? Well, I think if you sort of follow the flow of the passage, you can get that. So first of all, we will be judged for our words, verse 1. So this is why he's starting with teachers. We'll all be judged by our words, verse 1. How we use our words indicates the kind of self-control that we have over the rest of ourselves, verse 2. Words used for good or words used for bad are astronomically powerful. That's what he's going to say in verses 3 through 8. And words can be employed as they should be to bless God or as they shouldn't be to curse those who are created in His image, Those verses 9 through 12. So based on all of that, people like teachers who primary, whose primary responsibility is to use words are consequently then people who are in most danger of using them in a sinful way. And so more words equals more opportunities for sin. But also, a teacher doesn't just teach and walk away. A teacher 
bears a responsibility that is heavy, very heavy. This hits us in two ways. First, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. So just listen. We're not going to stay much time in there. We will be kind of jumping over to Matthew if you want to have a thumb there. But, but Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave, I'll jump to the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceit, deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's a lot there. I think when we went through the book of Ephesians or preached through Ephesians, was that like Two years ago? I'm not sure what it was. It feels like a long time ago. We went through, I think we stayed on this passage for well over a month. But there's a lot in there. Um, so much so that we have to really just summarize. But, 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 but that alone, sort of the weight of a lot in there, kind of makes our point. The goal of teaching God's Word, and that's the context here in Ephesians 4 and in James chapter 2 or 3, the goal or even the purpose of teaching God's Word is to equip the saints with what we teach. It's to edify to maturity with what we teach. It's to impart discernment with what we teach so that our people aren't easily swayed by false doctrines. It's to show how truth and love are not mutually exclusive through our teaching. It's to protect the unity that Christ has made and given to the church through our teaching. Or we could sum it up the way Paul does in verse 15. The goal is that through teaching we are all to grow up in every way into Christ. The goal, the purpose of teaching is Christ-likeness. So if you want to pursue teaching God's Word, don't if you can't bear that weight. Every word will be weighed. Every word, good or bad, will be judged. Judged with greater strictness. That is neutral there. Every word will be judged positively or negatively. If you can't bear that weight then don't pursue teaching. So first, not many of you should pursue teaching because the goal of teaching is heavy. And secondly, modeling what you teach is heavy. And so Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 and 4, through 4, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So obviously this is where we get the phrase, practice what you preach from this. Jesus is exposing the preachers of his day. They lay heavy loads of the law upon the backs of those who are listening. Their students, their people lay heavy loads on them and they themselves are unwilling to lift even a finger's worth. Now, this is, of course, a, a heavy burden for all of us. This, uh, the burden is for both teacher and student to listen to, to understand, and to apply the Scriptures, to make them a, a part of our life. But part of teaching is actually modeling. That, that was clearly a responsibility of the, of the rabbis 
in, in Jesus' day, but they didn't practice. And teachers today, pastors, shepherds, teachers today, the equivalent of rabbis then, know and understand this, or at least they should. That's why we have qualifications in the pastoral letters, or we have verses like this. When we teach God's Word, when any of us teach God's Word, it must be applied in our life for both the words we teach and the application of those words will be judged. So James says, not many of you should be teachers. It doesn't seem like very many aspiring teachers today pay attention to that. When I was in Bible college in Texas, I can't tell you how many guys decided to go to seminary because they didn't know what else to do. Sadly, some of those guys are actually pastors now. Why? Beyond not knowing what else to do, I think Jesus' words tells us, Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 7, so going on, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their uh, phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. So you hear it? <laughs> to be seen by others, they love places of honor, they love getting the good seats, they love getting greeted everywhere they go. They love the title. Know any teachers like that today? I can't stop them on Instagram. <laughs> they just keep coming in my little feeds. Like, I guess he's a Christian, so let's send him these crazy wackos that are saying garbage. You can't escape them. <laughs> All goes back to what Jesus said about words in John seven eighteen. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. They're seeking their own glory. And so when they teach, they don't sound like Jesus. When people see their lives, they don't look much like Him either. And so it all goes back to that chief end. If God's glory is your aim, then you're going to have an accent like His. You're going to sound like Him, and so you should pursue teaching. But if it's not, if you are the authority over your words, don't. So a couple of things to consider. First, congregations are meant to know their teachers. The members should know their pastors and teachers well enough that they can see that what they hear is actually in the lives of the people that are ministering to them. And so if a church gets too big for that, it's too big for that. For the sake of the church, but also for the accountability of the pastor and the teacher. Also, we have elders that are motivated by God's glory here. They aren't perfect. They're certainly not sinless. But all of them are humble, willing to defer to others, laboring hard amongst the sheep so that you can see their lives. I would also say that our teachers, elders, elder mentees, deacons, women who teach other women and teach children, and others that are teachers are aware of the burden that we've spoken of and work hard by God's grace to carry those burdens well. And so you as a body should be thankful for your leadership, elders and deacons, and for your teachers. Now, if you don't have any desire to be a teacher, don't worry. Verse 2 is for all of us. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Notice the we here. James is including himself now, and he's saying that we all stumble in many ways, and the big proof that we're all sinners is our mouths. The big proof that we're all sinners and that we're not perfect 
or our words. And so we're all going to be accountable for what we say, and how we say it, and how we live it out. All of us, not just teachers. So James is really, I think, just taking verse 1 as he applied it to teachers and now expanding it to everyone here. And so God cares about all of our words. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, Jesus is using the word justified here in the same way that James uses the word justified in James chapter 2. Jesus isn't saying that our eternal standing with God is based upon the careful study of our words or the, 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 the well-ordered um, guarding of our words. He's saying that our words reveal who we actually are, and so Jesus is expanding beyond what we teach to all of our words. Not just in a pulpit, not just in a classroom, not just at family worship, but to all of our words. And if you think about words that you don't want to be judged by God, which ones come to mind? Listen, Colossians 3, 8, and 9, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put on the old, off the old self with its practices. And so here it, you got language all over that. Slander, obscene talk, lies. And so what comes to your mind when you think of God judging all of your words? Do certain lies come to mind? Do certain harsh words that you've spoken to your children or to your wife or to your husband? Does a filthy joke that you said to a friend, you know, in passing come to mind? What words come to mind when you think of that? We'll have to give an, uh, an account for all of them, but Jesus specifically says, we'll give an account for our careless words. Now, we'll flesh this out a bit more in the next point, but Jesus is talking about words we don't think about when we say them. Words we don't filter very well. Words that maybe we wish we had, but in hindsight, it was a careless word. It didn't hurt anyone that much. I think we can think of careless words versus big, angry, harsh, lying words like this. So I have a little hate in my heart. Jesus says, no, that's murder. So I've said a few careless words. No, Jesus says, that's arson. Just like hate is the same as murder in the eyes of God, careless words are like gossip and slander and lies and character assassination in God's words. So I think careless words is something that James might intend here. We all stumble in what we say. Sinful words aren't just dirty jokes. They're not just the words that we say intended to cut someone. They're the ones that we didn't think about, prepare for, said in passing. Those are sinful words too. And those reveal our hearts just as much. Matthew 12, 34 and 35. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words, big and scary, angry, careless, doesn't matter, come from the heart. They reveal who we are. They reveal who our authority is. They reveal who we are submitting to. They reveal whose glory we're after, whose name we're most defending. All of that shifted from us to God when He sovereignly brought us forth by His Word, when He gave us new birth by a saving faith that He implanted within us. All of that shifted. And so it's painful to hear James 2.14 again, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have a bridal tongue? When we speak, our accent should sound like Christ. 
the world should pick up on it because for good or bad, our words are powerful. So verses 3, starting in verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large, are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small udder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest? How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James gives us three things that are small but boast of great power. Bits in horses' mouths, rudders on ships that steer ships, and sparks that burn forests. I think the image is pretty clear and easily understood. If we just consider the bit in a horse's mouth. Have you ever ridden a horse? I have. Now, I, I've shared this story many times, and I'll have to show it again, this gruesome scar that's on my... Can you see it? It's not that bad. But I was bucked off a horse <laughs> when I was a wee lad. Is that Irish? No, I don't think so. Um, But if you've ever ridden a horse or stood next to one, they're massive. And this little metal bit that's placed in their mouth gives you control over that animal, gives you a control over that animal that you wouldn't think possible. All you have to do is pull the reins back. The horse will stop or turn or, or buck you off, I guess. But you get the idea. The picture is pretty clear. Bits control horses. Rudders steer ships, sparks burn forests. Our mouths are like horses, ships, and forests. Then what controls our mouths? Again, Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our hearts. From our hearts comes from what's inside of us, good or bad. (laughs) Words. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Speaking to a church. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our words can corrupt, that's the, can decay, that's the, the intent of the word there, corrupting talk, it rots the person in front of us, breaks them down, or they can edify, build up. Ephesians 5, 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Our words can be filthy or grateful, foolish and crude or thankful. What does that reveal? Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death or life. Certainly, our words can lead to the death of someone, but this is more of a metaphor. Only God has the power to kill and to make a lie with his word, but the metaphor is, I think, powerful. Are we words typically destroying of others or healing, belittling or encouraging? So what do our words say about us? What's in our hearts if our words are characterized? Honestly, if our words are characterized by such things as gossip and malice and slander, what's in our heart? Where's that coming from? Spoken or written word? Do our words sound more like Jesus? Do we have his accent? Encouraged yet by this? (laughs) It gets better. Verses 6 through 8, And the tongue is a fire, 
world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James just piles one ugly, horrible picture on top of another here. A fire, a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body, probably picturing the church. A life burned to ashes, set on fire by hell, meaning influenced by Satan, by God. That's about as as bad as you can get as far as word pictures. What in the world were these people doing that would cause James... (laughs) to come at them with such ferocity, to use these words. Well, chapter 4 is going to tell you. It's going to tell us. And so when we get to chapter 4, these word pictures are really just pictures of real-life issues. So when we get to chapter 4, we'll see the real-life issues that are, you know, are inspiring these word pictures that we see here. So we'll come back to this, but I think we get the picture But where I want us to focus is verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now this sounds like what? Genesis, right? It's like James is sort of transporting us back into Genesis chapter 1. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So so God makes the animals and he makes man, creates man in in his own image, male and female. He created them and then says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and take dominion over all the creatures, the beasts and the reptiles and the birds, and the sea creatures. And we do. (laughs) We do. We've taken dominion over things much larger than us, with a leash, with a whip, with a a, a fence, with an electric fence, with a command. We've subdued lions (laughs) and bears. Oh, my. (laughs) But not the tongue. No man, he says. That is a startling image that he's taking us back to. But not the tongue. Why? Well, it's a, it's a restless evil. Have you ever tried to wrangle a toddler who's full of sugar? Sorry, Todds and Rodenbaz. I'm going to continue to rile up your children if you leave me alone with them right before bedtime. <laughs> I make no apologies. But it's why we dishonor members of our community behind their backs. It's a restless evil. It's why we, we can't stop ourselves from commenting quickly on social media with something outlandish or harsh without thinking it through. It's why we, we react in anger to our children in the heat of the moment or to a friend. It's a restless evil. As mere people, it's just mere people, men 
and women's tongues are a restless evil full of poison, and then backing up, they are set on fire by hell, he says. Which means, if our mouths are not tamed, we sound not like Christ, but like Satan. Paul Tripp, in his book on words, says that the, in the opening chapters of Genesis, as you, as you listen closely to those first few chapters, two voices speak. God who created all that there is with his word, and the serpent who deceived God's highest creation into the fall that cursed all after them. Tripp says, our words will either sound like God or like a snake, the snake, Satan. Does it make any sense that we would sound like both? That's where he goes next. But start in verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, again, Christians, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is taking them on a field trip, taking them out into creation and saying, this is clear. You're not going to go up to a fig tree and find a grape. Everybody knows that. You're not going to go to the ocean, to the side of the ocean, bend down and drink the water and expect fresh water. You know this to be true. They, the source doesn't betray the fruit that comes from it or the fruit isn't different than the source that it comes from. It's impossible, right? Then look at verses... 9 and 10. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So remember, he's speaking again to brothers, to Christians. With it we bless our Lord and Father, like we've done today. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. What's impossible in creation, what's impossible with trees, what's impossible with water, actually happens with believers. Actually happens. The source, the heart, both blesses God and curses those who are created in His image. It, it, it's astounding. We are truly His. We've been brought forth from death into life by His sovereign power. Just like creation, He spoke it into existence. He spoke our, our regenerated new birth life into existence. And He gave us a faith that's active and alive and so active and alive that it produces works that look like those that Christ did, imperfect, not quite, but in that direction like a bridal tongue, like a compassionate heart and like a, an unstained life. And yet still, we can take authority over our own words, seek our own glory, and use them for our own benefit. My brothers, he says, these things ought not to be so. They shouldn't be so. But tell me from your own experience, are they? It goes all the way back to the two commandments, the great commandments that we've mentioned over the last few weeks. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you do, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Or if you will love your neighbor as yourself, then you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our issue with our words as believers is love. Sadly, we can and do love and hate with our words. 
Love and hate come from the same source, our heart, which brings us then to our applications. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And to the believer, these things don't have to be so. So I have four things to impart to us in closing that will help us fight this sin and kill it and sound more like Christ. First, be serious. Don't jump over the importance of these words. Don't diminish the power of your own words. Justin and I were talking this morning in, this, in, in, my, in my office about words from our Father, probably spoken in, in our fathers. We're not brothers, but different fathers. Though we are related, we found out. It's another story. Anyway, um, our fathers had such huge impact upon us. Uh, the story I gave him was I, I had a basketball game, and I was in junior high, so I think it was seventh grade. I went and I played, and I played pretty well. We won by, I think, one or two points, but I missed three free throws at the end of the game. I got home, ready to eat. My mom brought the bowls of chili. My dad reached across, took the bowl from me, and says, you don't deserve to eat because I missed three free throws as a seventh grader. That had a certain influence upon me (laughs) for the rest of my days. We've all heard words and how powerful words can be. We've spoken words that are powerful. Don't diminish the power of your words, but most importantly, don't deny the reality of the inconsistency in your words. Ephesians 4.29 again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. 5.4, Ephesians 5.4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Or Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. With the same mouth, you use corrupting words and edifying words. With the same mouth, you use filthy words and yet still thankful words. There's an inconsistency there. If you're disbelieving of that, ask those closest to you. I know you're not disbelieving, you know, but ask those closest to you. Ask your children about the power of your words on them. Your wife or your husband. So first, be serious. Don't take this lightly. and Don't deny the inconsistency. Secondly, listen to Jesus. That's who we want to sound like. And so listen to Jesus. This is always our application for any sin that we want to kill, for any grace that we want vivified or given life within us. We look to Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and this is Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another in progressively ascending orders. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus is the Lord here, we're to behold. And more, the more we behold Him, the more we listen to Him, the more our speech and our words become like his. So what should we listen for? Luke 2:47. Still just a boy, Jesus in the temple confounding teachers. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. <laughs> he spoke in a way that showed an understanding of the scriptures to sound like Jesus, you need to understand the scriptures. You need to understand the big story, redemptive history, the big story and how it all fits together and points to him and to every command to every promise, to understand the scriptures. In the wilderness, when Satan tempted him with the things of the world, he replied, man does not live 
by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To sound like Jesus, you need to memorize scriptures. Commit them to memory. Love them so much, they're in your heart. In a crashing sea, in a boat with frightened disciples, Jesus told them to not be afraid. And he calmed the storm. You can't calm storms, but you can point them to the one who is sovereign over even the waves of a sea. When others are frightened, sound like Jesus by using comforting words, encouraging words. Point them to the one who makes every promise, yes and amen. To the rich young ruler, Jesus spoke harsh words, true words. To sound like Jesus, sometimes we have to say hard words. To those who are disbelieving, to those who are rejecting, to even us, we need to hear, they need to hear. Hard words. Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus spoke words of obedience. Take this cup from me. Not as I will, as you will. To sound like Jesus, we must speak obedient words, words that are submitted to God's authority, to Scripture's authority, and then let your actions reflect that and obey. On the cross, after having our entire legal record, past, present, and future, nailed, laid on Him and nailed to the cross, He spoke redeeming, atoning words. It is finished. He paid for all our harsh and corrupting and thankless and careless words. To sound like Jesus, you need to speak to yourself the finality of His work for your salvation. To have an accent like Jesus, you must relish in who you are legally, by faith, in Him. Daily, hourly, over and over again, resting in the finished work of Christ. But also in who you are becoming in Him by the Spirit's power. And so to sound like Christ... Tell others of his finished work. Tell yourself, tell others of his finished work. And then to sound like Jesus, we must understand the Scriptures, we must memorize the Scriptures, we must glory in his promises, comfort others with them, speak hard words in love to those who need to hear hard words in love, speak obedient words, then obey and speak the gospel in every situation to yourself, to brothers and sisters in Christ, and to unbelievers. If we speak like that, the world will take notice of our accent, that we're not from around here. And then be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the heart, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning Don't be under the control of substances, but be under the control of the Spirit. And you know where the Spirit always leads us? The Spirit was sent to point to Christ. He'll point you to Christ to listen to Christ, that we might look and sound like Him. And finally, be hopeful. So back up to James 3.2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. We can't tame our tongues, but God can. Man can't tame his tongue, but God can. And the Spirit will if we submit to him and look in the direction that he's always pointing us, and that is to Jesus Christ.
And so to the unbeliever here this morning, first of all, you will be judged for all of your sins, even outside of your words, but the most telling, even for every word. Surely you cannot deny that you cannot cover up your words. You will be judged for them, for all the words that have ever come out of your mouth. And the only one who can save you is the one who says, said, it is finished. To all those who are heavy laden by their words, by their sins, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. And so if you're outside of Christ's refuge and safety, that's my only application for you this morning is to turn to him, to come to him, to believe in him. If that's you, child or adult, Please come see me, see someone else, and listen to Jesus in his word. You must come to Christ. We all must come to Christ. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, a letter as, as, as hard as James is. We thank you for such letters. We know that we fail. We know that we sin, even as your people, that we are inconsistent. That unlike trees and water, we often hate and love. And so, Father, we pray that you would forgive us. We pray also, Father, that we would be encouraged by the hope we have. That you have given us all the means of grace. That we might live more like Jesus. That we might be godly. Father, we pray that we would avail ourselves of those, that you would use them to make us more like Jesus, to make us sound more like Jesus with our words. And we pray, Father, that you would give those words power, that we would reconcile, that we would um, encourage one another, edify one another, that we would preach the gospel to the lost, that they would hear, that you'd give them faith to believe. And for them, Father, today I pray that you would save them as you saved us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.